0: Why do cuts take time to heal? Why don't they just heal instantly? Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? It's two weird questions to start off with, but the premise of the show tonight is that they're connected. Essentially, what does it mean to be all-powerful? And if there's a God that can just do anything, why is the world so process-oriented? If you look at it under a microscope, it makes perfect sense why cuts take time to heal. You can't start anything unless the blood clots first, and then you've got to send in your immune system because infection would mess everything up. And you can't build new tissue without a collagen scaffold and so on everything is about process. If God made this world full of processes, is that a reflection of God? Does God follow processes too? When you think of of omnipotence, you think of a God that can just do anything, anywhere, anytime, but that doesn't seem to be playing out in the world around us. Humanity's problems aren't being suddenly solved. Are there things God can't do? And does God's behavior have anything to do with designs or processes? Okay, that's enough of the use of the word process, and that's enough questions for one monologue. Let's start looking for answers. Stay tuned. It's the What God Can't Do Show, a.k.a. Digging Into Philosophical Terminology Show, a.k.a. We're in way over our heads. Glad to have you here with us in that condition. My name is Curtis Childs. This show is called Swedenborg and Life. Glad to have you here. If it's your first time, thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate it. If you want to be part of the conversation, you or anyone watching now or even in the future, Get your questions and comments in for those watching live, we can answer them at the end of the show here. And if you leave some during the week, we'll try our best to get to it too, because we appreciate you watching. We want a show. And after we try to explain this topic, it'll probably be the last time anybody watches the show. So it's been a great ride, thanks. Let's get into it. We're gonna look at what God can't do, and we gotta start with the Omnis and the Laws. Okay, are there things that God can't do? Can that be possible? Let's see what Swedenborg had to say about it, and our journey begins with the Omnis. So what are Omnis? Let's take a look. Our first book opened, True Christianity 489. Here they are. Omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence are attributes of the divine essence. So, in case you're not familiar with those words, omniscience is all-knowing, omnipresence is being everywhere, and omnipotence is all-powerful. And this is not unique to Swedenborg. Just about every theistic tradition says God has these attributes. That's what's the difference between God and a really, just a really powerful robot or, you know, some kind of superhero. God is knows everything, has all power, can be everywhere at once. But it gets deeper than that, there are more nuances and subtleties to the structure of the thing. And for that, let's get back to true Christianity. TC 50 says, it is divine wisdom on behalf of divine love that has omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. So let's add a layer to our diagram. You think that it's not just God as one emanating thing, there are two key elements in God. You have divine love and divine wisdom, as Swedenborg describes, and it's actually divine wisdom that has all these traits, on behalf of divine love. Okay, you with me so far? Let's go farther. TC 49, we're going to be moving around a lot in this book, True Christianity. You can click that, download it for yourself, because he has this whole segment on the nature of God's three omnis, so we're following through that, sticking a few other things in there. He says, up until now, these three universal attributes of divine essence have not been understood because it has not been known that they keep to their own pathways, meaning the laws of the divine design." So keep that word laws in mind, uh, because we're about to use it, but I want to go first to our diagram, because we've got to finish this thing out. So there's this other player, the divine design, and that all these omnis follow the pathways. What does that mean to follow the pathways of the divine design? We're going to find out tonight. It's not as simple as God can do anything. There is this whole layered onion of divine love, divine wisdom, the three omnis, the divine design. How does it all work together, and what does it mean? Our first clue comes in that yellow highlighted word that we had right here before, which was laws. There are laws of the divine design. Now, you might think, if God is omnipotent, how can there be any laws that move his behavior? Wouldn't that mean that he doesn't have power? So we're going to get into that, and if you don't believe that God likes operating by laws, you haven't spent much time on this planet, because everything around us is absolutely run by laws. In the physical dimension, everybody who believes in God uh, uh, that I've ever come across says there's God, and God created heaven or whatever, the afterlife, but also this world. This is part of the creation of God, and if so, you're going to see some of God in the thing that God made, right? And this world is packed with laws. If you don't believe me, that's fun, but you have to believe this guy because he's a professor of physics. So, here's Max Blair, Dr. Max Blair, telling a little bit about laws and how they operate.
1: I have experience, every student in, in, in science and physics experiences this law, the sense of laws and orders, and in, in, in the way the uh, in, in instructors are able to convey this idea, they, they take things which are very common to the students and they and let them stare at it and start drawing the insights out of, well, what... You didn't even think the question, you start asking the question of how could this be kind of thing. And so that's able to develop into laws that become meaningful. And what makes them a law is not because, oh, it's the answer in the back of the book or it made you look cool. It's because it answers a whole bunch of other questions. It has an infinite number of v- applications out there that, that everybody else benefits from these knowledge of these. Fundamental simple laws.
0: So starting on the physical plane, the sort of outer shell of creation, as Swedenborg draws it out, we see it's it's run by laws. And as Dr. Blair said, it's not they're not laws. You think gravity, those kinds of things, aren't laws because we humans got together and talked about it and decided, this is one of the laws and we're going to write it, the, the same way we write traffic laws or those kinds of things. They are laws because they're pre-existing things that we discover and label, and once you unlock them, you can then answer all these other questions about the physical world because this law was already operating there. In case you're, you're still not uh, fully on board with the physical laws thing, we're going to look at an example that illustrates the way divine law is manifesting in the physical world and it, it has to do with the thing that makes a grandfather clock go.
1: Dr. Greg Baker was was teaching the physics courses here and math courses and uh, they are all about the pendulum and he was able to draw something out of the pendulum, something very s- simple concept, the pendulum, it goes back and forth. You got a grandfather clock, you, your brain's turned off to it entirely except it goes chimes every once in a while. But the pendulum has incredibly uh, uh, important Um, basis for many, many of the scientific achievements of the time.
0: Pendulum is important. It's brought about a lot of what we have here, but it's also important because if we're going to get into the nature of God, we need a tangible, concrete example. So we're examining physical laws to be, that's the foundation for our mental process tonight. If we can get a good understanding of how physical laws are and how they define the world that we live in, That's going to give us a better concept of spiritual law, which we'll be talking about next. So we're going to look at this pendulum thing that he was talking about. It's going to be a little bit of science, just like you're at science class, but have your correspondences hat on, meaning look at it and think about how this... start loading up how this is how laws affect everything. You'll notice he's talking about laws define all kinds of movement. You can predict things by them. We're going to need it. It's all important to load up because after that we're going to use it to, to move through the idea. So here, let's take a look at, at a bowling ball and a golf ball.
1: So, um, what, I want to, okay, what I want to show here is a pendulum system here. It's hung by a simple fishing line. It has a very slow motion to it. You can see it's going back and forth. Very predictably we've seen this at the museum we've seen it as the grandfather clocks uh, we've seen this in books Dr. Baker's books make this very clear the incredible history of the pendulum but I can say a little bit more about this uh, there's properties of the pendulum one of the properties is the mass of the pendulum here and the mass of this pendulum here can be felt in two different ways you can feel the mass by pushing your hand on it, and you can feel it. It's almost like a picture from the International Space Station. You see a pushing on a mass and it slowly floats. It's doing the same thing here. I can feel that momentum. I can push something. And you can really feel it if you've got to push a car. <laughs> okay. You can feel that. And there's also the mass of the force. The mass plays into the weight of the, of the ball here. The bowling balls were kind of heavy here, and I could pick it up and feel the force there. So there's a play between the force of gravity and the, and the motion and the m- momentum, uh, inertia of the, of the system there. So when the pendulum is up here, it's got a lot of gravitational force pulling down on it, but it's motionless up here. And it's got a lot of speed down here, but it's at the lowest point of gravity, but it's got a lot of momentum. So the momentum is trading back and forth, like on a swing. You can almost make a, a song over this, a back and forth. I used to sing it to the kids about gravity and momentum back and forth, and, and ah, they didn't turn into physicists, but <laughs> what the heck. I can take this pendulum here and take the mass off of it and put a little tiny ball on here. <laughs> hardly anything at all, okay? And you can look at the property of this and see that it moves very slowly now amazingly you'd say uh, well, obviously it's, it's, it's just a pendulum I've seen this a lot and but it wasn't until Galileo actually started trying to measure this with uh, something of a clock <laughs> the, the um, legend has it he his heartbeat in church service as his standard <laughs> he was able to measure the time it, it took for the thing to swing back and forth and it was a very interesting story to come up with that and it didn't matter whether it was the big ball or the little ball, it was a property. And it turns out the proof properties are the length of the string and the gravitational constant underneath it, which is something Isaac Newton came up with later on. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, you can also make a conical pendulum out of this and make this go into a circle. And it almost gives you a sense of watching a planet go around. Okay, and so you're sort of looking at what is in the mind of Isaac Newton when he was devising his gravitational theory. And one thing to think about is this, is like, look, this is a little ball here, it's got a frequency, and the big ball has the same frequencies. The law of gravitation, the law for planetary motion, you don't need mass in the system. It it just disappears from the whole process, yet it is so important that you have mass in the system here. It's pretty pretty neat that you would have the, the two going on there.
0: So you've been immersed in laws there for a few minutes. Did you remember that you were watching this show? Okay. There there was an immersion in laws because he's talking about, this is stuff we can observe. Balls are moving around. Things are swinging. It's all according to these laws. And you see everything that we interact with is shaped by this and the tangibility of it that, you, that because of the way motion and mass and gravity are. Those two different, uh, different size, the golf ball and the bowling ball, they move the same way. Momentum trades is why it goes back and forth. How, just think about how enmeshed those laws are, okay? Do you have that in your mind? Now, let's look at spiritual laws, and how does this same foundational nature play out spiritually. True Christianity 56. In the spiritual world, no one can do anything against his or her will. A condition there that comes from God, from the fact that his power and his will are one. On earth, you have it so that when you swing something in a circle, it moves a certain way because of mass and gravity and all that. In the spiritual world, that same kind of law is nobody can act contrary to their will. All right, that's a foundational law. So what is God's will like? This would be that p- a potential way that he could not do a certain thing, because he's got to act in accord with his will. True Christianity 37 talks a little bit about what God is. God is love itself and wisdom itself. These two constitute His essence. All the infinite things in God and all the infinite things radiating from Him relate to two essentials, love and wisdom. God is substance itself and form itself, and it is therefore the first and only substance and form whose essence is love and wisdom. All things that were made were made by God. It follows, therefore, that it was from love, by means of wisdom, that God created the universe and each and every thing in it. As a result, divine love together with divine wisdom is present in every single entity that has been created. Furthermore, love is the essence that not only forms all things, but also bonds and unites them to each other. Therefore love is the force that holds all things in connections." So a lot of words in a row there, two points I wanted to pull out of it. One, God is love and wisdom. Nobody can act contrary to their will. God cannot act contrary to doing the most loving and wise thing in any situation. Also we talked about how love holds everything together, that God is the source of love, so it's like God is everywhere. This is getting into omnipresence. But Swedenborg has this interesting claim that God is in everybody. God is always in everybody, but we don't necessarily have to be in God. And this is an important part of this whole show about divine design and omnis and what God can't do. We don't have to be in God. So that might sound like it's nonsense. To untangle it, here's Dr. Jonathan Rose talking about what does Swedenborg mean that we, God's in everyone, but we're not necessarily in God.
2: Part of what he talks about there is the fact that we have a multi-leveled consciousness. And I think we all experience this, although we may not have reflected on it, which is that We are all capable, are we not, of saying things like, Oh, what am I saying? Uh, That's a reflection where one level of yourself is talking away, and then another level says, Oh, what am I saying? I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, it's, It's fascinating that our thought is of a nature that we can actually comment on our own comment. You know, you don't even need anybody else to do it. We can talk to ourselves kind of thing. The fact that we're multi-layered, there's multiple layers of consciousness. God is always present at the deepest level with everybody. You wouldn't be breathing, your heart wouldn't be beating, you wouldn't be having thoughts or reasoning or feeling emotion or anything if God were not present at the deepest level. But that doesn't mean that your consciousness is aware of that presence of God because God has made us focusing beings. The way that our physical body goes, it's interesting that your ears are pointing, you know, your ears are set up more to hear something in front of you than to hear something behind you. They work both ways, and your eyes even more so. Very much about what's in front of you, not at all aware of what's behind you. You can see a little bit out in the peripheral vision, nothing behind. Our spirits are similar in that way, you know, like our minds our minds and hearts, uh, the the spiritual part of us, the non-physical part, is like that. We are able to focus and face in a certain direction. We've been created in such a way that if we're facing toward God, we can be conscious of God. We can turn, we're welcome to turn away. We can just turn, you know, God's left us that option to turn away, in which case we have no sense of the presence of God. So although God is omnipresent and always Uh, able to be perceived, depending on which way, you know, if we turn, God is always right there, right behind us, you know. But uh, we have the option of just being completely like that's no part of our consciousness. There is no God. I don't see anybody, you know, everywhere I'm facing, there's no God. I don't see it. It's
0: because of that choice, because of that option to, that, that has been given to us to not have to see an omnipresent being that we get to our first can't alert of the show. It's okay, stay seated in your chair, everything's gonna be fine. We're just warning you that we're gonna say something that God can't do, the omnipotent God can't do, which is, the first one, force us to accept Him. You've probably heard something like that before. God cannot, because He can't go against His own love and wisdom, God cannot force us to accept him. And to really get a handle on why that is, we have to spend a whole section on it, all right? So let's get to section number two, God's will. We're not going to talk a ton in this show about good and evil, and our freedom to choose. And if you're getting an appetite for that stuff, watching this, feel free to check out the Swedenborg Foundation blog. Uh, There's one posted on there just recently that has to do with this. If you want to read a little more into it, and there's tons in Swedenborg's books too, feel free to, any of the quotes that we put up here, download the book, look farther. But there's reading material. Don't read it right now, though. You gotta stay for this part. It's cool. We're going to talk about how God's love and His will are one thing. In True Christianity 43, this whole section is illuminating the nature of the will of God and why that would set it up so God can't force us to accept Him. Okay, the essence of love, God's will is love. The essence of love is loving others who are outside oneself, wanting to be one with them and blessing them from oneself. Two things, love and wisdom, constitute the essence of God, but three things constitute the essence of God's love. His loving others who are outside of Himself, His wanting to be one with them, and His blessing them from Himself. The same three constitute the essence of His wisdom, because in God, love and wisdom are united, as was just explained. It is love that wants those three things, however, and wisdom that brings them about." So. There you have a rundown. Uh, God has two elements, but there are three stages in that. It's it's rather technical, but the point is God wants to be one with people who are outside Himself, because God wants to give to someone else. That's That's the nature of divine love, and I feel like we're in danger here, though, of love, wisdom, becoming empty terms. The word love, in general, is hard to get a handle on these days. It's used for so many different things. So I wanted to show you a few clips to remind people what love is. This is just a couple of people that we asked to talk on camera for just a minute about experiences of love that they'd had, both giving love, getting love, experiencing it. Because when we talk about God's will is love, it's the thing that you've experienced at times it's not just a concept or a word it's that feeling it's that urge so let's hear these people's stories it may be something that you've experienced something similar to and that will trigger a memory of it it may be something you can pick up on but we got to get cleanse our palate so we can get a fresh taste of oh this is this is love so here's here are a couple stories uh, of love to to get us remembering
3: i get to work on this project with my church. It's called the Pay It Forward Crew. And the idea is we're connecting people who are going through a challenge or a time of need with people who are in a place where they're able and want to give back. One of our greatest kind of resistance we observe when we do these conversations and these connections with people going through needs, people who want to serve them, is that oftentimes people will say, well, thank you for offering, but my need is not that great. I'm sure there's someone else that needs it more. And it is with great joy and confidence that we convey to them, you do not have to earn this care and support, that we want to help. And um, the love and the service is just ready to pour in. It's such a blessing when someone allows us to come in and serve and love. And we notice that the joy amongst the team serving is palpable.
4: On the way back um, from spending Easter with my uh, with my brother, the car quit. It died. Uh, You know, and and we're talking about like really passing on to the next to the next world, no no returning. Um, So it was devastating. I mean, I I was very poor. I didn't know what I was going to do to replace it, and on top of that, I had to spend money to get towed. Uh, So I'd called some dear friends of mine to just pick me up from the place where the car was going to be, you know, to (laughs) to its final resting place. But what they did that was just an utter surprise. And just full of love was they brought me a uh, uh, t- these are two males granted brought me an Easter basket that they had uh, improvised just to make me feel better. It was deeply hilarious but to add to the as if you know as if it could be better, they also uh, composed a song sort of in a barbershop style and performed and performed that for me whilst presenting me with this this lovely. Easter basket and card, so um, y- it was amazing. It was amazing because it was a, a very rough day. Um, it was it had also just been a rough stretch in general. So um, the car dying was uh, a very unpleasant cherry on a very unpleasant Sunday, if you know what I mean. But uh, so it just meant so much to me. I can't express how much it meant to have these two dear friends go out of their way for no gain on their part and bring me these things that just totally buoyed my spirit um so it was just it was magical and um made me feel very loved and uh yeah just meant a great deal
5: okay so yeah i'm thinking about when i worked in women of change which is a a shelter down in the city on arch street that was a a great time of my life. I was working for about four hours a day and I would go down on the train. And I woke up this one morning and I didn't feel good. I was in a bad mood. I was thinking, is there a way I can get out of Nah, I can't do that. I'm not sick. So I went down to Women of Change to hang out with the entry-level women who are drug, drug addicted and mentally ill and um, supposed to be Going down to help them, so I went down anyway, and I came in, and they were hi, Dorothy. They were so sweet and beautiful, and um, I came in and sat down with them. They offered me a cigarette, and um, I, they had a Bible sitting on the table. I said, "Well, we could we could read something." And they said, "Yeah, we could read." How you doing, Dorothy? How are you feeling okay today? And I. I was, saying, I was saying I'm feeling better now um, because I'm with you people and we read a little bit from the word and they spruced me up and they chatted with me and by the end of the day I was, a, I was worth a million bucks, I felt so good and it was those people who I was supposedly going to help, nobody could have helped me more than they did that day, it was amazing.
4: Uh, the most joy I've gotten is working with men's communication and uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation because um, somehow what takes place there is more it's more clear to me the spiritual part of it Um, and when I see God present with men that uh, sort of like your ladies that men that you would think would be the worst of the worst or the lowest of the lowest And yet, when they embrace their recovery uh, 99.9% of times, those that succeed, they experience the presence of God doing it with them, in them, with them, whatever their belief system is.
0: Did you feel the love? I hope you did, or you remembered some love. Hold that in your mind. I know I'm asking you to hold a lot of stuff in your mind. I'm asking you to hold the nature of the physical laws of the universe, the feeling of love in your mind, and I'm sorry that I'm loading you up like that, but this is important for navigating this topic. You got that stuff in there, you got to realize, when we talk about God's will is love, it's love-love, like the real love that we experience, it's not just a concept. All right, moving on, True Christianity 43, we're going to use that that, um, concept right here. The first essential, God's loving others outside Himself, is recognizable in God's love for the entire human race. And as those who love the purpose also love the means, God also loves all the other things He created because they are all the means. All people and all things in the universe are outside God, in that they are finite and God is infinite. God's love goes out and extends not only to good people and good things, but also to evil people and evil things. It goes not only to the people and things that are in heaven, but also to those that are in hell. For God is the same everywhere from eternity to eternity. As he says, he makes his sun rise on good people and evil people, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So, obviously the takeaway there is that God is infinite love to everybody, but there was this interesting beginning part where it said, we're outside of God because we're finite, and God is infinite. That we're two different things. God is infinite, we're finite. And you have this initial problem where there's everyone would think in the beginning it was just God. right? Things had to come in sequence. So how do you, if you are infinite, how do you make something outside yourself? And I don't know if anybody knows that for sure, but I thought I'd get some musings uh, from a Swedenborg scholar on it. So here's the triumphant return of uh, Dr. Jonathan Rose musing on that concept.
2: An analogy that came to mind when I was thinking about this is the analogy of a house. I'm picturing uh, People who are uh, adults, are all grown up, and yet they're still living in their parents' house. Uh, imagine that the parents say to their grown adult children, oh, that's your room, you can do whatever you want. You know, it's your room. I'm not gonna go in there, I'm not gonna bother you. You can do whatever you want with your room. As far as the parents are concerned, that's the, the, the adult child's room. But as far as that person is concerned, uh, they know it still belongs to the parent. I mean, legally, it is the parent's property. God has somehow, I don't know how, but it's amazing that God has somehow taken part of his infinite real estate and said, I'm just going to let this be your room. You can do what you want with this room. And I I won't go in there, you know, even though it's all... Him.
0: It just so happens that that arrangement with God being infinite and us being outside and finite are the perfect conditions for a partnership. True Christianity 43 describes this, that why is a partnership important? Because love is nothing but an effort to forge a partnership. In order to fulfill the purpose intended by the essence of His love, God created human beings in His own image and likeness, characteristics with which He could forge a partnership. So that partnership is essential. It's a, it's a huge part of what the whole uh, story of God's will is, and that's what we're looking at in this section. So we got to take a closer look at that partnership to understand the whole dynamic. And as it just so happens, right here, we got a section on that partnership, so let's get to it now. <laughs> There's a lot of things that could be called partnerships, but they're not. A true partnership, an actual partnership, everybody knows that, requires a consent or a willingness on both parties to enter in and work together. That That's the essence of a partnership. And Swedenborg said that that's the core of the, the human-being-God partnership. There has to be a mutual inclination. He describes it in his book, Last Judgment. So this is somebody reading out of that book, and we've added some graphics to make it understandable and and fun to watch, so take a look.
6: Unless we are engaged in doing good, as if we were doing it under our own power, we do not adopt it as our own, and so we do not have a partnership with the Lord. For a partnership to occur, there must be reciprocation, a covenant, as in, if you do this, I will do that. In order for us to be able to act seemingly by our own power, We have been given freedom, the freedom to think, will, and do. We have been given the faculty of reason so that we may see what salvation is. We have been given the faculty of will and the power of choice and determination. We have been commanded to act. We have been given these things so that we may act seemingly on our own, even if this ability does not actually come from ourselves but from the Lord. If we did not act as if we were acting from our own power, we would be robots, and everything flowing in would pass right through us. The Lord constantly presses and urges us to act, but in a way that we seem to act under our own power, for the sake of adopting the action as our own, and for the sake of partnership.
0: To thicken the plot a little bit, if we were merely extensions of God, without any autonomous, independent ability to accept or reject, God would, in loving a person, be essentially loving himself. And, oops, sorry. And in Swedenborg, that's a no-no. True Christianity 45. From this description of divine love's essence, you can also see what the essence of diabolical love is like. So that's an interesting phrase, diabolical love. You would think, how can love be diabolical? Well, Swedenborg uses the term love as an attractive force, or a will to do something. So that can be a uh, good love, a will to do good, diabolical love, will to do evil. Nowadays, we generally, generally use the term love in a positive context, but he uses it as just like a, a, an attractive force, okay. You can see what the essence of diabolical love is like. It becomes visible by contrast. Diabolical love is a love for oneself. This is called love, but seen in its own right, it is really hatred. It does not love anyone outside itself. It does not want to form a partnership with others in order to bless them. It wants to bless only itself. From deep inside, it constantly strives to dominate all others and to own the good things that they have. And that's a great description he gives of the nature of self love as he describes it. Whenever I talk about self love, Swedenborg says it's bad. Everybody says, Don't you have to love yourself? Isn't that an important. You see the description there. It's not having good self-esteem, or oh, I am good at painting. This is love of self. In that sense, is wanting only goodness for yourself, wanting to take everything from other people. It's this extreme form of uh, opposition to mutual love, and that actually, if God just had himself to love, he'd be moving into that realm. So it's it's essential. That we are something outside of God that can choose to accept or reject God's design for us. Because then, when God loves a person, He's actually obeying the divine essence, which is to love, make happy, and bless somebody outside of you. Does that make sense? If it didn't, we'll try to clear it up with a diagram. And this is going to be a moving diagram. Again, this is Swedenborg being read, and pictures, pictures will save us all. Here they are.
6: Love and wisdom are united in God. It is important to know that God is continually building a partnership between love and wisdom in us. But if we are not facing God and believing in Him, we ourselves are constantly separating the two. The greater the partnership within us, then, between these two things, the goodness of love or of goodwill, and the truth of wisdom or of faith, the more we become an image of God, and are raised toward heaven, and even into heaven, where the angels are. On the other hand, the more these two things are separated in us, the more we become an image of Lucifer and of the dragon, and are cast down from heaven to earth, and then below the earth into hell.
0: Oh, bummer. That was such a feel-good. Have these nice people drawn, this nice music, and then, oh, we're cast into hell. Unfortunately he wants to talk about hell. So if we're going to talk about hell a little bit, let's talk about it more. This is the origin of hell as he describes it, True Christianity 78. All the things that God created and creates were and are good. As hell came into existence, hellish things came into existence on earth. Hell consists of people who turned away from God and became devils and satans after death. So that phrase, as hell came into existence, let me point out that this is in contrast to the prevailing common idea of hell in the Christian tradition and in others, that God created heaven and hell before. Hell is a place I'm gonna send everyone I'm mad at. Heaven is a place that I'm gonna send everybody that I like. But hell is not, in the Swedenborgian view of things, a place of punishment. Hell is a state. You saw that. When we separate love and wisdom, when we reject that inflow, as we have the right to do, we push ourselves away from God. That state of being away from, from God is called hell. That state of being away from mutual love, which is the same thing, that's hell. So hell is not This is a room I built before I made anybody that I knew I would throw people in. Hell is just the the absence of God uh, as we push ourselves away. Since we're not robots, we have that option. And this brings us to another can't alert. Yikes, this is good. God can't. Are you ready? Erase freedom to stop evil. You might think the world is out of control, a lot of bad things are happening, people are having very bad days. Can't God, just stop. Like, stop people from being able to hurt each other. But it it can't be that way, because human beings and freedom are the same thing. If we weren't free, we wouldn't be human. We wouldn't have this kind of consciousness that we have now. God couldn't partner with us, so we couldn't be immortal. You saw, and everything we've been leading up to, you have to have that partnership with a free being. So, the option to take away freedom, that would destroy everybody. So it's not an option. However, there are options for dealing with evil, and they all fall basically under this broad category, which, we mentioned before, it's called the divine design. So the divine design was created by God for damage control on evil, to bring things around to good without hurting freedom. So let's take a look, let's delve a little deeper into the divine design in part four. If we're going to look at the divine design, which you'll find throughout Swedenborg's works, and it's complicated, and I'm sure you won't come away with a full understanding of it just from this episode, because I don't have a full understanding, and I've been reading these books for some time, but let's get started. And a great place to start is what the divine design is. So this is Heaven and Hell 523. Divine truth emanating from the Lord is the source of His design, and divine good is the essence of the design. So there you go. It's coming right out of the two. It's the emanating force of the two essential elements of God, but it's even more intimate than that. True Christianity 49 says, we cannot comprehend God's omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence unless we know what the divine design is, unless we learn that God is the divine design, and that he imposed that design on the universe as a whole and on everything in it as he created it. So, God's divine design is not a thing, he sat around in the lab, I got to make something cool, and he made it. This is God. This is God projected. This is God's mind projected onto things. Let's talk a little bit about what a design is. True Christianity 52. A design is the quality of arrangement, boundaries, and interaction among parts, substances, or entities that that together make up a form. Exciting stuff, right? This quality results in a state. A state that is perfect when produced by wisdom acting on the basis of love, and imperfect when spawned by unsound reasoning acting on the basis of mere desire. So we have not only designs, but the opportunity for designs to be more or less perfect. Let's get a little tangible, because I know this is all abstract. Let's talk about the design of nature. And if there, we've found great ways to corrupt the design in nature. We pos, think of a polluted waterway, it's all messed up, and it's full of chemicals that are destroying its ability to hold life. If we stop polluting, the wisdom in that stream will correct itself. You know, a lot of the worst pollution, as soon as you cease letting chemicals in, the pollution stops. The stream can restore itself, and then suddenly the design of the stream changes. The properties it has. You can drink from a stream that's not polluted. Fish and other aquatic life can live in a stream that's not polluted. It can irrigate crops and other plants that, without making them toxic. The stream vastly improves when the harmful elements, which are analogous to the untrue ideas Swedenborg was talking about, are taken out. So, God's design is the perfect design. It's the one with pure love and wisdom behind it, so it's like the most pristine, intricate thing that you can get. And we're going to look at it in two subsections. This is the first time we've ever done this. Here comes subsection one. But did you think that would cut to a whole uh, screen? Is this a subsection? You know, I'm still here. I didn't go anywhere. Is this a subsection? And so a, don't don't think you thought you could run to the bathroom. No, we're, we're going right into it. Subsection one, we're going to talk about divine design, and the return of the omnis. This is true Christianity 63. Because God is not extended and yet fits all things throughout the universe that are extended, He is omnipresent. The universe and its essence and design is the fullness of God. Therefore, He senses all things through His omnipresence, He provides all things through His omniscience, and He produces all things through His omnipotence. Clearly then, omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence, uh, I mean, yeah, are one. Now, you may have noticed at the beginning that word, extended. What is that? Uh, And this is an example. If you download the deluxe edition of this, that the free ebook is the deluxe edition, doesn't have it on the PDF, but you'll find the NCE translation team has provided wonderful footnotes that explain things like this. So as you're reading through, you'll see a little number. You'll go to the back of the book and it has it there. Here's the footnote for extended. By the statement that these elements are extended, Swedenborg means extended in three dimensions in space, that is, they take up space. Although atom-braded, whoa, in earlier philosophy, the concept of extension first became of critical importance to philosopher, philosophical debate in the writings of Rene Descartes, who drew a contrast between matter, which possessed extension, and mind, which did not. Any educated reader of the 18th century would have instantly recognized this commonplace philosophical term. So, that's from Stuart Shotwell, who's cool, and there's a lot more where that came from. It's important to note that there, Swedenborg was writing for a particular audience in his day, and you have to understand a little bit of the context to get what he means. So, he's using that term extended. His readership at the time, they all knew what that meant. They would have got that right away. We might not... So, that's why it's important to have good people like the NCE team translating this, providing the context. Okay, so, back to the Omni's. The divine design is love acting through wisdom on the world. What is omnipotence through the divine design? Is it just omnipotence is power to do anything you want? No, it's only the power to do wise, loving things, good things. God does not have the power to do evil things because that would be below him. It's, t- there's no good human being example. Think about what the best basketball player in the world, the best musician. Can they? Could the best musician write a bad song? They would be so far beneath them. I can't. No, I just can't do that. And God is infinitely higher. He just can't do something that's not loving and, wiz- and and full of wisdom or wisdoming, as I almost said that in mind. Here's a a further description of that. This is from Swedenborg's True Christianity 56, and it's the return of the diagram. So if you don't get it, maybe you will after this.
6: God's power and his will are one. Because he wills nothing but what is good, he cannot do anything but what is good. In the spiritual world, no one can do anything against his or her will, a condition there that comes from God, from the fact that his power and his will are one. God is in fact goodness itself. When he does something good, he is in himself. He cannot walk away from himself. Clearly then, his omnipotence fills and works within the sphere of the extension of goodness, a sphere that is infinite. At a deep level, this sphere pervades the universe and everything in it. At a deep level, this sphere also governs things outside of itself, to the extent that they become part of it through their own design. If things do not become a part of that sphere, it still sustains them. It tries in every way to bring them back to a design in harmony with the universal design that God inhabits with his omnipotence and follows in his actions. If things against the design are not brought back into the design, they are cast out of God, but there he still sustains them from deep within. From all this you can see that Divine Omnipotence cannot move outside itself into contact with any evil, nor can it move evil away from itself. Evil turns itself away, which is how it ends up being completely separated from God and thrown into hell. Between heaven, where God is, and hell, there is a huge chasm. From these few points you can see how insane people are who think that God can condemn anyone, curse anyone, throw anyone into hell, predestine anyone's soul to eternal death, avenge wrongs or rage against or punish anyone. People are even more insane if they actually believe this, let alone teach it. In reality, God cannot turn away from us or even look at us with a frown. To do any such thing would be against his essence, and what is against his essence is against himself.
0: Essentially, that chasm that you saw open up magically in that piece of computer paper, those are the limits of God's power. That God does not have the power to do evil things. A lot of the things that God has been accused of doing, condemning people to hell, being furious with people, having vengeance or wrath with which he smites people. God cannot do those things, because those things are evil, and God cannot do evil. Pure good and pure love cannot do evil. So if you're looking for something God can't do, it's that. Other cool takeaways from that clip, people can choose to be away from God, but God is always giving them as much good as he possibly can. The chasm is not because God is pushing people away, it's because they're pushing away. From God, that God is always moving closer, uh, but only as close as we allow, because to, as we said before, God can't force us to accept. So all these can'ts pile up on each other and do define a boundary. There does seem to be some structure to the omnipotence of God. Let's look further at God's awareness of His own design. TC 58 uh, says... oh, this this is to kind of finish up that conversation that I was just having. If, as the modern-day belief goes, God's omnipotence was absolute for doing evil as it is for doing good, surely it would be possible, even easy, for God to lift the whole of hell to heaven. He could turn devils and satans into angels. In a moment he could take all the ungodly people on earth, purify them from sin, make them new, holy, and reborn, and justify them, turning them from children of wrath into children of grace." solely by assigning and attributing them to the justice of his Son. God cannot do this with his omnipotence. It is against the laws of his design for the universe. It is also against the laws of his design for human beings, which dictate that the individual and God have to form a mutual partnership. God cannot do these things because doing so is against the laws of his design, although he never stops wanting or trying." You notice that he said the modern-day belief in the beginning there, that is modern when Swedenborg was writing, that it was the Christian church's doctrine at the time. God, you know, could could just, anybody who just said, I want the merits of Jesus, doesn't matter how they live, they'd go up into heaven. God can't do that because, first of all, evil people would be miserable in heaven. Heaven is mutual love, heaven is wanting better things for other people than yourself and sharing everything that you have. There are some people who would hate that, they would have no good days, so God is not pulling them into heaven because it's out of love for their happiness. Do you understand that? God has these limits. And also, the design cannot just be, just be washed away. If you think about the way that a biological organism is, you can't just say, uh, have a, a mammal grow to adulthood, okay, then give it wings and make it fly. It can't just grow wings, its body is not designed for flight, it, go- it goes against all these laws, and that that's the way it is on the spiritual level as well. So the omnipotence is there, but it doesn't go against these laws, because those laws are love and wisdom. We'll get to that more in a minute. Another interesting factoid is that God, through omniscience, knows instantly, if anything, is how into the design it is, how out of the design it is, and how to correct. True Christianity 60 to 61 Uh, God is aware of, sees, and knows everything down to the least detail that happens in keeping with the divine design because it is a universal design that encompasses the smallest individual designs. The universal design, with all its individual designs, is a masterwork so well connected together into one thing that you cannot touch or affect one part without something of a sensation flowing back to the others. Every created thing in this world has something comparable to this quality of the divine design in the universe. From what occurs in keeping with the divine design, God is aware of, knows, and sees everything down to the least detail that is done against the divine design. When people are involved in evil, God does not hold them there, He holds them back from evil. He does not lead them, He struggles against them. Continuing, he perceives the quantity and quality of evil and falsity from their constant wrestling, striving, struggling, fighting, and pushing back against his own good and truth, and therefore against himself. This comes from God's omnipresence in everything of his own design, as well as by his complete knowledge of everything in that design. By analogy, When your ear focuses on harmony and on sounds that are in tune, and then something discordant or out of tune occurs, you notice precisely how wrong and how far off it is. A similar awareness occurs when you focus on some pleasure and then on some unpleasant sensation that interrupts." So analogy, and this is not just a happenstance analogy, we are wearing the divine design. The human body is a model, a schematic model of the divine design. As we've mentioned in an episode of this show called The Shape of Heaven, we did a short video called You Are the Lungs, all about how we're sort of a model, a carbon copy, a miniature of the divine design. And that ability of God's to know instantly whether or not something is in the design or out of the design is a correspondence with our own body's ability to know when something is wrong with it is like through our immune system, we can tell about invaders. So there's a a direct correspondence between our body's ability to recognize invaders, harmful things, and God's ability to recognize things that are in and out of the divine design. So we're going back to a little bit of science. We're going to hear about the body's immune system and how that works. And as you're hearing, it's just going to be two minutes, but as you're hearing, think about what is What would this be on a spiritual level? How would you amp this up to God and how he looks at all of creation? So here's our good buddy, Dr. Ed Higgins, describing how our body scans itself and, and works with immune responses.
7: It's really cool. So we don't always think about this, but I mean, we're under constant threat from the outside, from toxins, poisons, viruses, bacteria, plus also a little bit from the inside, cancers. So we're under constant threat for these things. So we need a way to then find out what doesn't belong so we can identify it, kill it, remove it, protect our organism, our whole system. So how we, at the most basic level, how we do this is through something called uh, uh, antigens, A-N-T-I-G-E-N. So um, they can range from anything from very small particles, like smaller things, like a whole toxin, a whole poison, say, to then maybe something larger, like a little part of, of the Cell wall of a bacteria, like maybe a region in particular proteins, fats, sugars coating cell walls, maybe uh, part of a virus particle. So there are very, uh, very individual portions like that that identify different molecules. We also have these things, antigens, on our own cells. It's normally segments, not the entire cell wall, because that's too large. But but certain sequences of again proteins, sugars, fats. Um, that are unique to the individual. So my cells all have identical antigens. Your cells all have identical antigens, but yours are not the same as mine. Yours are, are completely unique to you. Mine are unique to me. One exception being identical twins. Same exact genetic code, same exact antigen. So then we, um, we have roaming cells, white cells mostly, white blood cells of our body's immune system that are, are constantly roaming around, sampling these antigens, looking for, for what matches my own antigens, these particular sequences. What does not match my own? What is self versus non-self? And this, um, this training process actually starts before birth. During fetal life, we are actually training cells to, to recognize self then. So then once the baby's born, now they're very much exposed to non-self recognizing self versus non-self becomes very important.
0: There you have the difference between finite and infinite. Finite, you have to learn. You don't have all knowledge about what's you and what's something else. you got to learn it. God has this omniscience, is able to recognize everything that's in or out of the Divine Design. But what did, what did you hear there? We're talking about processes. That we're looking at, it's not just the body gets rid of immune things, there's processes. This thing has, this has to look for this antigen, and they hook together. It's all down to the minutest levels based on structure and process. And when Swedenborg talks about God can recognize anything in and out, he does it somehow. We don't know exactly how, but there's a process. is that cool? Are you guys hyped? If that was, if you maybe don't like thinking of the human body in terms of microscopes, we have uh, Chelsea from the Swedenborg Foundation who is going to talk about how you can tell just by having your hands on somebody's body if something is outside the, their, their miniature divine design or their, their design for health.
8: Everything in our body is so well connected to each other. And so, and that's all because of um, the connective tissue. So the most common protein in the human body is collagen, which is the essential protein in the connective tissue that connects everything together. I worked as a massage therapist for um, five years and I was and am a yoga practitioner. And this idea of how connected the body is to itself in every part um, is so fascinating and came into play so much in my body work where um, you can actually feel you know we all are breathing and it's the lungs that are doing our breathing but you can actually that the your breath passes through your whole body so that you can feel your breath if you're lying still on a table and I just have my hands on somebody's feet I can feel their breathing it actually moves their feet you know and it's moving your hands um, and because of that connection, it can also let me know where something is maybe not so well connected or it's blocked off or there's some injury because it's not moving. The rest of the body is flowing in response to the breath, but, um, but maybe this shoulder injury or this hip issue means that this one leg just isn't, isn't on, on the same page with the rest of the body, so you know something's up there.
0: So we're talking about this analog of the divine design in us. Why don't we make it official? Let's talk about how us in the divine design, divine design in us, and let's do it with another subsection. All right, here we go. Yep, hello. I'm here. That's cool looking though. I wanted to watch that just like you guys. Subsection two, the divine design in us. We are created in the divine design. True Christianity 65. Human beings were created as forms of the divine design." See, I told you, I was just saying it. Thanks for backing me up, Swedenborg. We have been created as forms of the divine design because we have been created as images and likenesses of God. And since God is the divine itself, we have therefore been created as images and likenesses of that design. The divine design originally took shape and it continues to exist from two sources, as we've heard before, divine love and divine wisdom. We human beings have been created as vessels for these two things. Therefore, the design that divine love and de- and wisdom follow in acting upon the universe, and especially upon the angelic heaven, has been built into us. Any day you're feeling like I'm not that cool, I'm nothing to write home about. You are. You're the divine design. You are. You are the model and the messenger of how God communicates with heaven and with the human race, and we are receivers of divine love and wisdom. That what's what's the overall human form meant to do? Receive love, and wisdom. That's what we do. And not only that, if we do what we're supposed to, receive love and wisdom, we get benefits from living in the divine design. What kind of benefits package? Well, I'm glad you asked. TC 49. The more we follow the (laughs) divine... I guess it's pretty cool to abbreviate Swedenborg books, TC. I just get tired of saying true Christianity so many times. The more we follow the divine design in the way we live, the more we receive power against evil and falsity from God's omnipotence, receive wisdom about goodness and truth from God's omniscience, and are in God because of God's omnipresence. So, we have their benefits from each of the Omnis coming in. As we become more and more connected to God, we become more and more like God. In those categories, we we acquire the blessedness of God's happiness and peace. We start to live out the whole design. So going from that warm fuzzy note, we have another can't alert here. Yikes! Um, tell your kids it's okay. God can't go against the divine design. There it is. I told you. It's right there. That's proof. God can't go against the divine design, because the divine design is the highest love and the highest wisdom that can exist. It is the best plan for every human being. It's the best plan for the happiness of the human race. And if God did anything other than that, he'd be dropping the ball. He would. It may not seem like it in the moment. Swedenborg talks about how he gives it the analogy of if you're walking by a construction site that was just in the beginning phase, you'd see a mess. The earth is all dug up, there are building materials in piles, it just looks like it's a wasteland. But God sees the house as it's going to be built. That's the, God has the long view, the eternal view in mind, and He's doing the best possible thing to get everybody as happy as they can be forever. So if He did anything against the Divine Design, <laughs> He'd be letting us down, which would be bad. And he, uh, if you want to hear that described more, this is another video from Swedenborg's True Christianity, and this has great graphics that are going to be much clearer than me talking. So here, video.
6: Now because we have been created as forms of the divine design, God is in us. But this is true only to the extent that we fully follow the divine design in the way we live. When we do not follow that design in the way we live, God is still in us but only in the highest parts of us, making it possible for us to understand what is true and intend what is good. That is, he gives us a capacity to understand and an inclination to love. The more we go against the divine design in the way we live, however, the more we bar the lower levels of our minds or spirits and prevent God from descending into them and filling them with his presence. As a result, God is in us, but we are not in God. When we follow the divine design in the way we live, we are in God because God is omnipresent in the universe and in everything within it at the inmost level, since things on the inmost level are in the divine design. Things that go against the divine design are all outside that inmost level. On the outer levels, God's omnipresence takes the form of an ongoing struggle with things that are against the divine design and a constant effort to restore them to the divine design. The more we allow ourselves to be restored to the divine design, the more thoroughly present God is in each of us. Consequently, to a greater extent, God is in us and we are in God.
0: Yeah, let's get there. That's inspiring. Let's get to that, where those arrows are all coming in, the design is working, just like with any machine. If you use it like it's supposed to, it can accomplish great things. So how do we do that? How do we complete that circle? Our final quote for the night, True Christianity 67. Before creation, God was love itself and wisdom itself. That love and that wisdom had a drive to be useful. Without usefulness, love and wisdom are only fleeting, abstract entities and they do indeed fly away if they do not move in the direction of usefulness. The two prior things without the third, love and wisdom, without usefulness, are like birds flying across a great ocean that eventually become worn out, fall into the ocean, and drown. God created the universe... If you ever want want to know that a sentence is important, see if it starts with, God created the universe so. God created the universe so that usefulness could exist. That's why. Therefore, the universe could be called a theater of useful functions. All aspects of the divine design have been brought together and concentrated in us so that God can perform the highest forms of useful service through us. Without usefulness as a third party, love and wisdom would be as unreal as the heat and light of the sun would be if they had no effect on people, animals, and plants. That heat and that light become real by flowing into things and having an effect on them. When useful service results, love and wisdom take on a real existence. In that useful service, they set up a place for themselves to live and stay, and there they rest as if they were at home. We are that way ourselves when God's love and wisdom are in us and we do something useful. The reason we were created images in likeness of God or forms of the divine design was so that we could be able to do God's useful services. Back to that video of the people and the love they're describing, doing good things for other people, creating things, helping people, alleviating suffering. That is the point of everything. To be able to work to make others outside yourself happy. That's why the universe exists. According to Swedenborg, all this stuff about the divine design, it's all going towards that end. And all the things that God can't do are because to do them would go against this goal of have, of God serving and helping people and having us help each other, love each other, make each other feel good. Doesn't that make you feel good? Hopefully so. If it did, click like, click subscribe. That's our episode for today. You can help this episode spread by clicking those two buttons, spreads it out into YouTube. If you want to support the programming on this channel, everything that goes into it, consider making a donation to the tax-deductible 501c3 nonprofit Swedenborg Foundation. Click here or we have other buttons around. Uh, your grant, your uh, donation will be matched five to one through a grant we had. We re- I just want to say I really appreciate the support you guys have been giving. Getting all these donations really is gratifying and because it shows it's something that you guys like and you think is valuable and we're going to do our part to take that and make it into cool stuff. Hopefully you feel like we did that tonight. If not, it's time for you to let me know in the questions section because we're going there right after this video break. <music> Okay, I said we're going to do questions. Let's do them. No, no frills. Let's get right to them. Let's see. Here comes number one, and it's here. Seth, what does Swedenborg think of smudging, burning sages, burning herbs, insects, et etc.? Aha! I was asked this last week, and I got off on the wrong track. I thought sages are talking about, like, you know, shaman and various traditions. Swedenborg, this time, I'm going to get it right. Swedenborg does not... okay. I What I wanted to say was Swedenborg does not mention burning... Uh, any kind of thing and its impact, although now I'm feeling less sure about that because there very well could be a reference to it somewhere out there. However, he doesn't make it a major topic of focus. However, he says plenty in correspondences that you could put together to get to something like that. He talks about the correspondences of plants, and that certain plants and herbs are helpful and heavenly in essence. He talks about the correspondence of Uh, smoke, and of things burning, and that, you know, in the stories in the Old Testament of the Bible, where it talks about incense burning, and going up to God, you know, from the temple, that that is about uh, connection, human to God. And uh, so those kinds of things have good correspondences. So, if you're doing something on this, in this earth, burning sage, smudging, that perhaps people are attracted to that because it has a good correspondence, it communicates with Heaven. And it very well could be. Uh, uh, That stuff tends to make me feel really good. So it could well be that there's a communication with Heaven through correspondences there. So that's what I'd cobble together. Hopefully this time you got your, your question answered satisfactorily. Thanks, Seth. Okay, next one. Portland, YouTube. So it's God's design order in some way explained in the biblical story of Adam and Eve, the trees in the garden, and the serpent. Yes, uh, absolutely. We did an episode that was called The Meaning of Adam and Eve and it, i encourage all of you guys to look that thing up and it goes swedenborg goes step by step through these biblical stories if you secrets of heaven which we quote in this show a lot is a moving through the beginning of the bible going meticulously detail by detail explaining what they mean and in a nutshell the the two trees uh, are there because of autonomy and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Is believing your autonomy is all there is. It's it's a full autonomy that you don't need any God and that you're just by yourself. The tree of life is understanding that 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 all life is from God. Basically, the serpent is our senses, uh, the way that we sense the world, which deceived us, deceived our sense of identity, which is Eve, etc., etc. So the answer is yes. Check out our episode, the meaning of Adam and Eve, for uh, our spending a whole hour on, on that topic. So thanks very much for that question. Next one. Lisa, if hellish spirits can influence our mind, who were the hellish spirits that influenced the first people, as hell had no population at that point? Oh, you got me. So if anybody has, you know, last episode, yeah, last episode we did a show called The Lies, Evil Spirits, tell us. Swedenborg, if if you're new to this show, Swedenborg talks about heaven and hell, both interacting with our minds, and hell being responsible for all the evil that comes into us heaven being responsible for all the good. However, as we said earlier in this show, God didn't create evil initially. It was only, it was good, but then it fell away. So where did the first evil come from? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I have not yet found an answer in Swedenborg. He talks about the falling away of the first people that they went from loving uh, like being with their communities and caring about them to wanting power and to amass that, uh, and, and that's where sort of tribal war started. But he doesn't talk about the specific mechanisms. So you win, you win this round. <laughs> good, good work. Uh, and if I ever come across something about that, I'm going to be the first one making a show about it. So it's a it's a mind boggling question, and you're you're very smart to ask it. Okay, next one, Mark. When Jesus performed miracles, did he say his followers could do similar things that didn't obey natural laws and processes?" Jesus certainly did say that, and Swedenborg has this interesting take on the miracles of Jesus Christ. Brief rundown, we've done several shows about Jesus Christ. Swedenborg says Jesus is the uh, human manifestation of God, so this is God as we can relate to, so super important, the one God in front of you. Uh, He did miracles, and Swedenborg says those things actually happened, that miracles actually happened. However, he says it wasn't out of order. It was in order with the laws of spiritual inflow into natural or physical. He doesn't go into any detail about how that works, but he says that it's not a suspension of the laws, and I would imagine physical law as well. I don't know how that would all work, which is by trademark, but there, he's very careful to say that this is part of how it is. And you never, you know, you get this, the placebo effect, those kinds of things, where it seems like mind can have some power over matter. Does that come into play? I don't know. Is that the spiritual touching the natural? How does it all work? I don't know. You just have to take my word for it. He says that even though that stuff seems fantastic, it was in order, and specifically in the order of the spiritual world affecting the physical world. So, there's that. Next one. Great question, by the way, Mark. Claire, Why is the Bible written in symbolic symbolic language? Why not say it straight out so everyone can clearly understand it? That is a great question, and if you see any of our shows where we explain biblical passages, you'll probably be tearing your hair out saying, why couldn't he have just said it? And if you look around at the world and all kinds of negative stuff has come out of the Bible, why didn't he just tell it like it is? The answer is protection. The The symbolic stories in the Bible... well, there's a couple answers. One is that they're protection, meaning people who are evil try to distort anything spiritual or religious that they can into things that are evil. There's been a lot of evil around religion in the world. You look around, people have done horrible things with it, because those documents were cryptic and the people didn't understand them, they couldn't do actual violence to the real principles. They went off on these tangents and, and destroyed that. There's this whole, Morgan devotes a ton of text to talking about how that, in that way, they didn't um, violate the internal meaning. That That's important. It was protection is one thing. And then also, God speaks in multi-layered language. That's just how he does it. Um, because he exists on multiple levels at once, he's talking to multiple audiences, to us at the angels at the same time, that those stories are means of communication between heaven and earth. Like correspondences, I was talking before about burning sage or something. We hear about these certain physical activities that are representations physically of spiritual processes, and because we're hearing about that, it can connect the world. So there's some weird metaphysical answers to that. Hopefully that f- that's satisfying to some extent. Thanks, Claire. Next one. Drive by poet, how do people in this world do things which aren't in accord with their will? In this world, that's the perfect question. That's why we have this world. In this world, we are allowed to be divided. We have a brain and a heart. And we use those terms to sort of describe our thoughts and our feelings. And that in this world, we can think and know even though I want to do this, it's not good, so I'm not going to do it. Or even though I want to do this, I can't right now, so I'm going to do this we have those split. It's not like that in the spiritual world to the same extent, and that's why we're in this world first. Because here is where we can reform, that's the only way we can change ourselves. We can feel some kind of negative impulse and think, even though I want to do that, I've heard that's wrong, I'm going to act in a different way. So that mechanism that lets people do things that are against their will, is how we are reformed. And also this world is a buffer, because if we all had no filter, and just said everything we thought and did everything we had any urge to do, that caused a lot of problems. But we have this, okay, wait, I can think about my reputation. Maybe I'm not going to say that right now. Um, so that that is why this world is like it is, and it's important for it to be that way. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I'm just going to assume everyone's nodding at their computer screen right now. Great job, Curtis. Thank you, thank you. Okay, next one. Su 522 but how loving is it for a father to allow such hell on earth? So often victims have no free will under their perpetrators. So that gets into the problem of evil. And it's in this in a way this episode was kind of skirting the problem of evil, but it's obviously a huge thing. Why allow suffering? I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to give any answer that's really satisfying. If you're looking at looking out at the world and thinking, you know, there's suffering why is there suffering? In general, uh, the long view, as Swedenborg describes it, is that suffering is temporary, happiness is eternal. That, That everything that is happening now is so incredibly short as compared to eternity, and we're all eternal beings, and that nothing evil is being allowed. None of this hurting or killing, or suffering, is being allowed unless good comes out of it in the end. That even if somebody has some horrible experience that lasts for years, they something is coming, something is being gained out of that that is going to make them eternally happy, and that, that that is worth it. And so that's one side of it. The other side is that we're in this sandbox together and it's real. That this gifting of the free will is real. It's, it is a little bit outside the, hey, I dropped my kid, my kids at this playground, they hurt themselves on it, I'm going to sue you. You know, that's kind of the mindset that that we're actually let loose in this world together and our choices have real impact, and that the freedom is more important than the suffering. I mean, even though that sounds crazy when you think about suffering, that somehow in the long run it's going to be worth it. And you do, uh, in in defense of my argument, it, when people have near-death experiences, even if they've suffered a lot in their lives, or have been frustrated at the suffering of others, when they see the plan behind it and how it all works universally, I've never read one that didn't, they say, I get it. It all makes sense. It's worth it. And maybe that's something that we want to take on faith, as they say, or maybe it's not. In the end, it's a great question because I'm not asking people to not be outraged about suffering. Uh, that's just something that happens. Uh, suffering is bad. And I'm not trying to say that I'm not outraged about the various sufferings of my life and other people's lives. You know, you just gotta hope that it's true, that in the end, it's all going to make sense and be worth it. So there's my my rambling answer to that. It's a great question. Uh, I guess we'll take a few more. We're getting kind of late, but we, we can do a couple more. Um, let's take a look at the next one. Blender. What is Swedenborg's take on the hateful stuff in the Bible? Stoning, misogyny, various hate crimes, etc. Yeah, the Bible is full of nasty stuff. I, I, there's very few stories in there that I would I would want to teach to kids. This is even like stories that are popular at Sunday school fodder, like uh, Joseph's coat of many colors. Well, I mean, hold on, man. His brother's... Uh, tell fake killing him, and they sell him into slavery, and those guys in the butcher and the baker, their heads get cut off. It's brutal. The whole thing is allegory. The whole thing, the reason, oh, this is perfect, the reason that it, there's so much messed up stuff in the Bible is it's describing the messed up life experience. We, uh, just that last question maybe this doesn't seem profound to you guys, why is life is so hard. The Bible is a description of the inner processes in the human mind. The wars between tribes, you know, the destruction of one people by another is not God saying, this is good that these people killed these people in my name. This is talking about, in hearts and minds, the kind of uh, killing that happens between bad ideas, killing good ideas, things going to war, and that making people go to war. This is a descriptor of that stuff. It doesn't mean that the Bible condones all that stuff that's in there. Uh, Misogyny. When men and women are mentioned in the Bible, it's not talking about male and female and gender roles. It's talking about different parts of our mind and the relationship between the two. And when one does bad to something else, it's talking about a dysfunction there within the individual person. The whole story is about the individual. So, am I selling you? Not so much? Okay, all right. That's the tip of the iceberg with that stuff, but the reason why I feel good around the text of the Bible is because of the meaning and the love, once you realize it's not condoning the literal external sense. So there's one thing. We're going to have two more. Let's look at them. Robin, why then does the, the divine design not stay true to form in all people? Some are born deformed or are injured. Uh, So we're talking about the the design of the human body. The answer is processes. When people are born deformed or injured, I mean, I know that there's environmental pollutants that make people deformed, so there is a price that we pay for inhabiting the world with each other and being reckless in what we do. It's not like people are formed apart from means baby is forming in the womb, it's got to have the right conditions. If those conditions are disturbed, God can't just make it turn out perfect. It doesn't mean the divine design in total in us is the human body with the spirit inside it. You know, and the body, the purpose of the body is to foster our life on earth. So some people's life on earth goes with a body that is limited in certain ways, or has had some kind of damage, it doesn't mean it can't accomplish its purpose of creating a foundation for their eternal spiritual life. Uh, It doesn't... physical stuff is not like, oh, because you got deformed because you had something wrong with your spirit. It's not a one-to-one correlation with that. The physical world affects the physical world, the spiritual world affects the spiritual world primarily. There can be some crossover, but overall, If somebody is born blind, as Jesus said, that doesn't... it's not a moral issue. It's just... it's a physical issue. And that may seem like I'm separating them there when I joined before, but the whole world is is more or less in or out of the divine design. A lot of the issues that we have physically are based on the state of the planet and what we've done to it. So that's gonna mess up the design. In an ideal world, everyone will be born healthy, but we're not there. So we're trying to get there. Even so, the body is just a shell of the divine design. The real design is in the spirit. Okay? Okay? There's a couple things. Now, one more question, and we'll wrap it up. This is Todd. Does Swedenborg ever use trying to imagine a world without being able to choose evil as a way to know it is required to be able to choose good? Um, So, Swedenborg talks about having to know opposites. Uh, You have to know what evil is in order to choose good. That is another reason that Swedenborg does say evil, why evil is allowed to exist, because we have to know what evil is so that we can know its opposite, which is good. We have to see or have experienced some form of hatred or harm to understand the opposite of it. Also, evil in the world is the only thing that allows us to recognize our own evil. Unless there were an arena in which, if I have some kind of negative, murderous tendency, unless there's the potential for that to come out, I would never have to face it. I would never have to do battle with it and push it away, and then you could never be healed on a spiritual level. So. I think that's a good place for me to leave it, because it's probably not the answer. I probably didn't understand the question right. I probably didn't understand any of the questions right, but it doesn't matter because I feel good about myself, and that's what's important. All right. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate you being a part of the show. I say that. It's not hollow. I love it. I love that it makes it so that we can do this show for you, and I love the idea of people watching this show. I saw in the chat in the beginning, people were saying, oh, I've been watching the this show a lot this week, and now I want to... I love the idea of people picking up the material, watching it, getting into it, and hopefully it's providing something that that enhances your life in some way. And if you want to enhance your life again next Monday, join us. We were talking about slogging through Bible stories, and we're going to do it next week. We haven't done it in many, many months. We're going to look at the modern Cain and Abel, and what it all means. So stick around. I don't mean stick around the whole week, but I mean stick around participate each Monday. Do it next Monday. You'll see our show. Thanks, guys.
2: Bye.